0: Let me start my message by asking the question uh, How did it go this week? And I'm not asking there How did it go with the kids or the school Or your finances, the job I'm asking how did it go In terms of walking in kingdom awareness We've been saying the last two weeks That uh, we're called to live in love As Christ loved us and gave his life for us And to live in something is to breathe it To think it To make it part of your every heartbeat How did that go? Did you stay awake? Being awake is to be aware of reality, to be conscious of reality. And to be really awake in a kingdom way is to be aware not only of the reality of the world around you, the physical world around you, but to be aware of the, the, the presence of God, the love of God, to walk in that awareness that at, at every moment you are unsurpassably loved by your creator and the one job you have in every single moment is to reflect that love to God, to yourself, and to others. How did that go? Walking in that awareness. If, if you're like me, you've found something like this, if you were intentional about this, that you have periods of time where you go for a minute, five minutes, maybe even 20 minutes, where you're aware of this, and it's wonderful. You're, you're walking in this awareness. But it happens, does it not, that You forget. And uh, you get sucked into your robotic, mechanical, neurological computer, and you, you uh, adopt the, the awareness of an atheist. You're just aware of the physical world around you. The hardest, it's the simplest, but the most challenging thing in the world is to walk, to train your mind to walk in the awareness of God, to integrate the love of God into every breath, every brainwave, every heartbeat. Uh, it, it's absolutely challenging. What we're up against is our ordinary program mind that is programmed to be self-centered and programmed to focus on just the physical world. And so our, uh, in any given moment when we fall asleep and we're not aware of the, awareness, the, the, the reality of, of God's love, uh, we, we fall into this robotic mind and we, we, we take on the perspective of an atheist. We're functional atheists in that moment. I'm convinced utterly convinced that this is why the church, for all of its right beliefs, is not generally known for the one thing we're supposed to be known for, and that is our outrageous Christ-like servanthood love. Because for the most part, we walk as though that was not true. We think as though that were not true. Our ordinary mind is as though that were not true. We, 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 our lives are fragmented. We are double-minded. We're aware of God's presence, perhaps, in a worship service, but not, not when we're having lunch after the worship service. We're maybe aware of God's presence and, and love and the reality of God when we're praying, but not when we're going about our everyday life. We're fragmented. We're, we compartmentalize our faith. Like it's two different brains. And what God calls us to do is to integrate, to integrate the truth that we know by faith into every single area of our life, every single breath of our life. Kind of reminds me of a, something I heard from Tony Campolo Where I read from Tony Campolo one time uh, When he said, uh, he was talking to a Buddhist And uh, the Buddhist asked Tony Campolo Why, why do you uh, tell your kids, teach your kids to pray uh, If I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take why, why do you teach them to pray that? You ought to teach them to pray Lord help me to wake before I die Ooh, uh, Buddhists are pretty smart. <laughs> you see, in the Buddhist worldview, um, uh, the main problem with humanity is that we walk through life half asleep. Uh, and, and so the, the, the whole goal of the religion is to wake up, uh, to become enlightened. And there's a lot of truth in that, is there not? Most people, in fact, do, most of us do, most of the time, walk half asleep, and the part that we're asleep towards, the part of reality that we're asleep towards is the part that's most important, and that's the reality of God's love burning towards us each and every moment, and our call to reflect that love back to God, to ourselves, and to all others each and every moment. When you do this, to the extent that you do this, and some of you have found this out, uh, it, 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 it's revolutionary. It, it, it changes everything. A couple, I've got a couple testimonies about that that I were very encouraging. One person said, Uh, That they find that when they can walk in this for any length of time in this awareness, she goes. The world starts to look really different. People start to look different. It's it's odd. All of a sudden, you're like in a different world because you are. You're aware of something that you weren't aware of before. Another person said that they feel like they're walking around in a perpetual Jesus hug. Uh, Well, fine. I mean, that's. But see, when we do this, we stop being double-minded. We're single-minded. There's a stability to our life that wasn't there before. We're no longer defined by the circumstances around us. We're defined by that love of God flowing in us and flowing through us. It brings a joy, it brings a peace, and it brings a profound love that that wasn't there before. Uh, Sometimes the joy just all of a sudden explodes in you. I was in the airport this last week waiting for a plane, just doing this, just walking in in the awareness. And all of a sudden there's just this joy. I was getting goosebumps. No reason. Uh, But it's it's joyful to dance the kingdom dance And to ascribe unsurpassable worth to all people that you meet It's what it means to live in love As Christ loved us and gave his life for us It's what it means to walk in the light You don't just turn on the light and then leave No, you walk in the light Walking is a moment-by-moment thing It's what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind you can't do that except on a moment-by-moment basis. It's what it means to put on the mind of Christ. You can't do that except on a moment-by-moment basis. It's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. You don't just get a spiritual buzz and then walk out. That's what most Westerners do. But to walk in the Spirit is to walk surrounded by the Spirit, aware of the Spirit, aware of the reality of the Spirit. Walk in the light as He is in the light. Now, to, to walk in this, to walk in and in, in, in live in the love... As Christ loved us and gave his life for us Presupposes that you're convinced That Christ loves us, loves you And gave his life for you And that's what I want to speak about here this morning We've talked about kingdom consciousness We've talked about kingdom single-mindedness This morning I want to talk about the kingdom's king The kingdom's king And I want to read two passages of scripture here The first is John 14 Those of you who have been here for any length of time Know that this is one of my favorite passages I think it's so crucial Jesus said to him I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me If you know me, you will know my Father also From now on you do know him and have seen him Philip said to him Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied Jesus said to him Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why on earth would you then ask, show us the Father? As though though there's more information about the Father to the left of me, to the right of me, above me, or below me. No, look at me. Just keep your eyes fixed on me. Here I am. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, for the love of Christ Urges us on It's the love of Christ Urges us on Uh, Suneko is the word that means to compel Or to constrain Or to surround With the sense of surrounding as to move something forward The reason why he, the love of Christ, urged him on Is because he was convinced that One has died for all And therefore all have died And he died for all Paul says, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray, God, that you would use this message to again wake us up, not just in this service right now, Lord, but uh, set in motion a default setting that that, uh, causes us to walk awake. And Lord, I pray that you'd use this message to help us to be people who are in all areas of our life, at every moment of our life, compelled, constrained, urged on, surrounded by the love of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's start by talking about the verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Paul says that the love of Christ... Compels him, urges him on, surrounds him, motivates him. The love of Christ refers to the love that is Christ. It refers to the love that comes from Christ and refers to Paul's love for Christ. That's the kingdom dance. And that kingdom dance, that love of Christ, Paul says, urges him on. It motivates everything he does. Whatever he does, he does. Because of the love that Jesus is, because of the love that Jesus gives, and because of the love that he has for Jesus. And for Paul, this is to be the motivation for everything every believer does. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 16, Let all that you do be done in love. Every single thing, let it be done in love. Let the love of Jesus Christ be the motivating force for every single thing that you do. Now, the reason why Paul was compelled and urged, surrounded by, constrained by the love of Christ, he says in this passage, is because he was convinced. He was convinced that Jesus died for all. He was convinced that Jesus died for him and that Jesus died for every person. So Paul was convinced that he and every other person had unsurpassable worth scholars debate quite a bit about what Paul means when he says, if one died, then all have died. If Christ died for all, then all have died. But at the very least, it means this. For Paul, the way he looked at people was no longer in terms of uh, their standing in Adam, the old self. That old self was dead. He saw them in, in terms of of uh, what God has done for them in the the person of Jesus Christ. He saw them in terms of the unsurpassable worth that they have as expressed by the unsurpassable price that God was willing to pay for them. It changed everything. He saw Christ as unsurpassably beautiful, and because of what Christ did, everyone else had unsurpassable worth. And that, that conviction compelled him to live in a different way. It it pulled him out of himself so he no longer lived for himself. He was compelled, constrained, surrounded by the love of of Christ to now live in an entirely different way, to be aware of an entirely different thing. The reality is that when we like Paul are convinced, utterly convinced of Christ's love, it pulls us out of ourselves. It pulls us out of our robotic programming that uh, conditions us to live self-centered lives. When you're utterly convinced of the love of Christ, it it, 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 it changes the questions that you live in. Uh, you no longer live in the ordinary earthling questions that people have. You don't live in the question of what's in it for me, how are things going to pan out for me. You don't live in the question of how can I make my life a little bit more secure, and a little bit more comfortable, and uh, you know, a little bit more convenient. You don't live in the question of am I getting enough recognition for all the contributions that I make, and who likes me and who doesn't like me, and, and those sorts of things. You live in an entirely different set of questions. When you're convinced of the love of Jesus Christ It pulls you out of yourself To live in an entirely different way Which is to say It pulls you into real life Because Jesus taught us that when we learn how to lose This self-centered, robotic, programmed life When we lose that We find real life Real life is found when you're dancing the kingdom dance When you're living to love Receiving love and giving love So Paul says that The reason why Jesus died for all is so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but rather live for the love of God. And in the light of that, live in service to others. It all happens because Paul was convinced that Jesus Christ died for all. And that this changed everything. So the question I want to ask this morning is, are you convinced... Are you convinced that Christ died for all? Are you convinced that God loves you? Are you convinced that God loves every person? Are you convinced that God is altogether beautiful? Are you convinced that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for those who crucified him? And I'm not asking, do you believe it? Because I suspect that most people in this auditorium believe it. I'm asking, are you convinced of it? Are you convinced of it in your gut? Are you convinced of it down to your toes? Are you convinced of it as part of your instinctive nature? Are you convinced of it the way you're convinced that the sun will rise tomorrow? I'm not asking, what do you say when a pastor or somebody else asks you what do you believe? You'll probably say, yeah, I believe Jesus loves me. But I'm asking, are you convinced of it? Does it, does it run through your body like, like bone marrow? Does it, does it permeate your being like, like blood vessels? Uh, are you convinced of it when you're taking a shower? Are you convinced of it when you're dropping the kids off at daycare? Are you convinced of it when you're patching up a wall as part of your job and your employment? Are you convinced of it uh, when when you lose that employment? Are you convinced of it when the doctor tells you that you've got six months left to live? Are you convinced of it when your ex-husband tells you that he's moving out of state and he's filing for child custody? Are you convinced of it when the doctor tells you that your child has six months to live? Are you convinced of it like the son is going to rise tomorrow. Are you single-minded? Are you single-minded about who God is? Are you single-minded or are there competing pictures of God in your brain? You believe that Jesus loves you, that God looks like Jesus Christ, but are there areas of your life which, at least under certain circumstances, your robotic brain flashes pictures of God that are not at all consistent with the person of Jesus Christ? So what I know to be true is that most of us, and I suspect all of us, have a programmed brain. The brain, the physical brain that's absorbed all sorts of messages in the process of growing up and living in this culture. I suspect most of us in our programmed brain have a whole lot of garbage about God. And therefore a whole lot of garbage about who we are. And therefore a whole lot of garbage about who other people are. And therefore a whole lot of garbage... Uh, uh, About uh, what life is all about We have tapes that we run on autopilot Which we're not conscious of Because we're not conscious of most of the program stuff in our brain But we feel its impact A young lady that I'll call Carol uh, Spoke with several years ago She believed that Jesus loved her But her life was really flat. That's how she described it. Um, She felt apathetic about God, apathetic about church, apathetic about herself, apathetic about everything. Uh, She had no real love, no real passion, no real excitement in her life. She had some anger issues in her life, and on top of that, she had an eating disorder um, and a preoccupation with her appearance, obsessing on her her body weight, obsessing on her figure, obsessing on her makeup, obsessing on how she looked with her hair and and all sorts of other things Now what I know is true Is that all of our emotions Are not the result of something outside of ourselves It's the result of stuff that's going on in our, our brain the, the movies that we're running The tapes that we're showing the, the records that we're playing It's all a result of that And so what I know is that Carol's got some garbage in her brain About who God is, who she is And what the world's all about And so I, I asked her, you know, what is your picture of God? She gave me her belief Well oh, I believe that Jesus Christ you know, died for me and she's sincere in that. She believes that. But With a little more probing, what we found out was that in certain circumstances, in fact, in most circumstances, uh, triggers went off that activated messages about who God is, who she is, and what the world's all about, that were not at all consistent with the truth that Jesus loves her, that Jesus died for all people. Under certain circumstances, she would see God as a workah- like her workaholic father who never had enough time for her, and that makes her feel worthless and unimportant. Under certain circumstances, she would see God as having this this short fuse, this hot temper, just like her father. And she would feel fearful and want to hide from that. Under other circumstances, especially when she was screwing up and and when when the eating issues and the appearance issues really got a grip on her, she'd feel a great deal of shame. And there she saw God as as disappointed in her, having a frown on on his face as she screws up for the ten thousandth time. And she thinks that God is disappointed in her because she screwed up for the 10,000th time. But what's really true is that she has a picture of God being disappointed in her. And that's what's causing her to screw up for the 10,000th time. The reality is this. You simply can't live. And experience unsurpassable worth if you've got an ugly picture of God in any area of your brain. You can't live the, the abundant life if you've got an ugly picture of God. You can't see God and, and feel excited about God and passionate about God when your picture of God is, to any degree, ugly, not beautiful. You can't ascribe unsurpassable worth to other people. You can't live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you if the picture in your brain is not that Jesus Christ loves you and gave his life for you. And you could tell carol all sorts of things and she had been told all sorts of things to try to help her but it wouldn't do a bit of good as long as she's got an ugly picture of god carol you know you ought to, you shouldn't be so concerned with your looks you know that really isn't important now is it and and and, and you ought to treat the, the temple of god a little better than you're treating it. this is bad for you. Uh, you you know better than this come on and, and are you reading the Bible enough And are you going to church enough Are you tithing enough Are you witnessing enough Are you, are, are you really praying enough Are you seeking after God enough You know I, 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 How's your moral life going And all of the stuff that All of that had been, had been Had spoken to her But see the reality is Is that as long as her picture of God is ugly It's going to feel ugly And she's going to act ugly In response to it You may help Carol Go into hiding better By shooting all over her odding all over her you got to do better do uh, you know that, that will send stuff into hiding but it will not transform her inner life the only thing that transforms the inner life is the love of jesus christ the only thing that can reach in there deep enough to transform us from the inside out is the outrageous love of christ coming to us and flowing through us that's why paul says That uh, all that we do is to be done in love All that we do is to be done in love Including getting out of our eating disorders Love should be the compelling force there Including being weaned from our preoccupation with our appearance Love should be the motivating force there It's amazing that so often when it comes to issues like this We think that shame is a better or fear is a better Or threats are a better, uh, or guilt is a better motivator than love But Paul says that everything you do be done in love Paul says that the love of Christ urges us on. The love of Christ, the love that Christ is, the love that comes from Christ, and the love that we have for Christ in response to the love that comes from Christ, that is to be the compelling, motivating force in our life in all that we do. Paul says that it's the kindness of God, another way of just referring to the love of God, that leads us to repentance. When love gets in there, when you really are convinced of it, not just believing it intellectually and theoretically, but when you're really convinced of it, it leads you to repentance. If you want to be free from your eating disorder, it's vital that you lock in the love of God in the midst of your eating disorder. You want to get free from being preoccupied with your appearance and what your hair looks like and what people think about you. You need to, whatever else I might say to you, I'd, I'd say this is the central thing. You need to know and need to become convinced that you are unsurpassably loved by God Despite your petty preoccupation with your appearance If you want to get out of fear Don't dangle the love of God as a carrot on the stick That will be given to you if you get out of fear You need to experience the unsurpassable love of God In the midst of your fear You want to get out of sin bondage in your life Don't dangle the love of God as the carrot at the end of the stick Using shame and guilt and other things To try to get the, the, the carrot To get out of the sin bondage I assure you that in the long haul, that will simply lock you further into the sin bondage. The the best means of getting out of the sin bondage is to accept, to be convinced of the outrageous love of God in the midst of the sin bondage. Because the love of Christ, when it gets on the inside, it compels us, it moves us, it surrounds us, it transforms us. Let all that you do be done in love. When that love really gets in, when you're utterly convinced of it, it has a power to motivate us to change in a way that shame and, and guilt and, and threats and all the other standard religious motivating factors, they're stupid. They don't work, and they don't hold a candle. They don't, come, they don't come within an infinite orbit of the power of the love of Christ that can compel us in all areas of our life. Everything hangs on our becoming convinced of the love of God, no if ands or buts about it everything hangs and are becoming convinced not just theoretically believing but convinced of the unsurpassable worth that we and all people have because of that everything hangs on our being convinced convinced like the sun will rise tomorrow convinced like as a part of our instinctive nature convinced like like the, the breath we breathe and the thoughts we think and the heartbeat that's that that goes it needs to be as automatic for us as all those functions are that Jesus Christ is altogether lovely that the king of the kingdom that we are a part of is altogether beautiful everything hangs on our picture of God it's the most fundamental thing in your brain this is why the first thing the devil went after to suck humanity into his rebellion against God was Eve's picture of God you see it in Genesis chapter 3 the serpent said to the woman you will not die that's a lie For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What what, what the serpent is doing here is this. He's exchanging a beautiful, true picture of God for an ugly, petty picture of God in Eve's brain. Instead of seeing God as this loving creator who only has Adam and Eve's best interest in mind, he puts the forbidden tree in the garden as a no trespassing sign. It's a loving thing. You guys, it, 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 just stay human. That's what he's saying there. Don't try to know good and evil. Yeah, just, just stay human. And, and if you do that, you just love like I love. Don't try to know what I know. Then, then you, you'll walk in paradise. We'll walk together. We'll have perfect union here. It was a loving thing that God did, a no trespassing sign, saying, stay, stay away, kids. But what the serpent does here is he transforms everything and installs a polluting lie into eve's brain so that now he makes the impression that god's a liar gives the impression that god is threatened by this tree gives the impression that god is uh doesn't have adam and eve's best interest in mind he's just trying to guard his territory the serpent paints an ugly petty pathetic picture of god a kind of picture that no one would be excited about this is the problem that carol had when you got an ugly picture of God, of course you're not going to really be excited about it. Who can be excited about an ugly picture? So also Eve here accepts this, this ugly picture of God, and therefore she doesn't go to God to, uh, to uh, be filled, doesn't trust God to be filled with uh, life and filled with un- unsurpassable worth and filled with love. And therefore Eve feels empty because she's wired, like all of us, to receive that life. And therefore she's hungry, and therefore that tree over there begins to look kind of tasty. And see, if you think that, that you're not, you can't get the worth for free from God, then you ask the question, what can I do to get that worth? What can I do to get fullness of life? What can I do to feel important? What can I do to get recognition? All of those kind of things. So Eve reaches out and grabs from the tree as a means of trying to acquire what God wanted to give her for free. And we've been doing it ever since the only way to block all of that ultimately all of our sin is a result of that fundamental idolatry trying to give ourselves stuff trying to acquire for ourselves stuff that god wants to already give us for free because he's a beautiful god and it's all rooted in a deceptive ugly picture that we have of god so everything hangs on this becoming utterly utterly convinced that jesus was telling the truth when he said if you see me You see the Father, that God looks like this. Everything hangs in our becoming convinced that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The Word of God. It means the expression of God. When God's expressed, it looks like Jesus Christ. The Word of God. Note the singular there. There's not about 19 words of God. There's one Word of God, and His name is Jesus Christ. Everything hangs on our becoming convinced that Jesus reveals the Father. It says in John 1.18, it should be 1.18, not 1.14. Uh, That uh, no one has seen God in Himself at any time, but the only begotten Son, He's the one who has declared Him or revealed Him or manifested Him. There's not a lot of manifestations, the manifestations found in Jesus Christ. Everything hangs in our becoming convinced that Jesus is the image of God. There's not a lot of images, there's one, and His name is Jesus Christ. Everything hangs in our becoming convinced that He's the way to the Father, uh, the, the, the truth about the Father, the life of the Father. He's the perfect expression of God's essence. The perfect expression of God's essence. God has spoken to us in many times, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, in many places, in many ways. But in these last days, in this last epoch of history, He has come clean and revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything hangs in our believing that Jesus Christ is the form of God. Everything hangs in our believing that He's the fullness of God. The fullness of God is found in Him. Everything that God is is found in him. Don't go looking for parts of God or aspects of God or dimensions of God outside of him. It's all found in him. The glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the wisdom of God, the beauty of God, the voice of God, the revelation of God. He's the incarnation of God. He is the king of the kingdom, the domain in which God is king. If you want to know what the kingdom's about, if you want to know what God is about, and if you want to know what you are about, you look to the person of Jesus Christ. Not to the left, not to the right, not above, not below. Keep your eyes fixed on him. If you see me, you see the Father. Why on earth then would you ask, show us the Father? Don't go patching your picture of God together as a montage of your past experiences and a collection of various voices that you've heard in the past and things that mom said to you or dad said to you or or some song on the radio said to you or, or the tragedy in your life last year or some obscure verse you find in the Old Testament or whatever. Lock this in and don't waver from it. God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for those who crucified him. That's the heart of God. That's the essence of God. Everything you need to know about God is found in that. You want to know about the attributes of God? Look at Jesus Christ. Don't go consulting some Summa Theologica in the Middle Ages. Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know about the omnipotence of God? Look at the cross. You want to know about the omniscience of God? Look at the cross. You want to know about the the, the character of God? Look at the cross. You want to know about the deontological, ethical implications of the phenomenological realm and the ontological being? Look at the cross. It's all on the cross. God is found in Jesus Christ, which means that right now, that Calvary love, that the infinite intense love is towards you this very moment. No ifs, ands, or buts. Everything hangs on our believing that and walking in that awareness, purging out of our brain all the other demonic garbage that might be there. Because until we're convinced, you can't be compelled. The compelling, the urging, the motivating is predicated on the being convinced. I sometimes think that we need to have happened to us. In fact, I know we need to have happened to us. We need to have Jesus say to us what Will Hunting's therapist said to him. Or at least have him talk to us the way Will Hunting's therapist talked to him. Will Hunting in the movie Good Will Hunting, one of my favorite movies of all time. Will Hunting was this abused boy who, uh, terribly abused boy, who was a genius, a mathematical genius. And like most abused children, uh, he internalized it. He thought it was about himself, uh, that he deserved this, that he was bad. And so, like most abused kids, he lives that out. You live out in consistency with what's going on in your head about yourself. And so he had a very self-destructive life, sabotaged relationships and a number of things. But tragically, because he was so smart, he used that genius mind to create an incredible wall around him to do a song and dance, to keep people out, to protect himself from people, and to hide the enormous shame and enormous pain that was in his life. But there was a time when his therapist, played by Robin Williams, finally cracked the edifice. And here's what it looked like. What's it say? I read. You... Why? Have you had any uh experience with that? Twenty years of counseling. Yeah, I've seen some pretty awful. I mean, have you had any experience with that? Personally. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Sure ain't good. father was an alcoholic, mean drunk. He'd come home hammered, looking to wail on somebody, so I'd provoke him so he wouldn't go after my mother and little brother. Interesting nights, were when he wore his rings... Yeah, he used to just put a, uh, a wrench, a stick, and a belt on the table, and just say, choose. Well, I gotta go with the belt there, Vanna. I used to go with the ranch. Your foster father. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what is it like Will has an attachment disorder? Is it all that stuff? Fear of abandonment? Is that why, uh is that why I broke up with Skylar? I didn't know you had. I did. You wanna talk about it? No. Hey, Will. fault. It's not your fault. (laughs) It's not your fault. hits for me, but uh, that scene is, I think, one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen. (laughs) Will believed that it wasn't his fault on some level. But in the deep recesses, way, way down there, he didn't believe that. And that's compelled him, that's what constrained him to live in this self destructive, self protective, shame filled life that he had lived. And Robin Williams finally gets through, starts to peel the onion by just bombarding him with truth spoken in love. It's not your fault. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Look at me in the eyes. It's not your fault. And I think that we are all to some degree like will towards God we, we know he loves us but there's garbage there often associated with pain and we keep a, a, a facade up a, a self-protective facade up and uh, what we need to have happen to us is what will had happen to him can you picture in your mind Jesus coming to you just picture Jesus like 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 that. That's probably something on what Jesus looked like. Coming up to you and saying, I love you. I love you. Look me in the eyes, son. Look me in the eyes, daughter. Do you know I love you? I love I died for you. I died for you. I died for you. I love you. I love you. Do you get it? No, No, you don't get it. Listen, I love you. We probably are inclined to think, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, uh, sure. and I know that. Thanks. That, that's so nice of you. But we're not getting it. I love you. I love you. Maybe at some point when he starts to get close, there's a part of you that just wants to push him away. Like Will did. You just want to say, what are you doing? And now we come up with this, yeah, yeah, you love me, but, but of course there's, there's these exceptions in my case. There's these ifs, there's these ands, there's these buts, there's the past, there's the scurps, there's the present struggles, there's all these mistakes, there's all this stuff, and all the rebellion that I've had, and all the disobedience I've had, and you, you know all that. And what would, What's got to happen in the midst of that is just to keep hearing, I love you. I love you. I died for you. I died for you. Because it's when the love of Christ can finally permeate every crevice of our being, get down into that ugly stuff that is there, that it can begin to change what is there. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It changes us from the inside out, but you've got to hear, I love you, I love you, in the midst of everything you're about. And as you do that, you begin to see your pathetic, as as you just look in his eyes, And hear him say, over and over and over and over again, I love you. Hear your name on it. I love you, Greg. Greg, I love you. You're not getting it, Greg. I love you. I love you. I love you. Over and over and over again. That is what will begin to compel us. To get out of stuff on the basis of his love. To be transformed on the basis of his love. To be kingdom people on the basis of his love. His love is never, never the carrot at the end of a stick. His love is always the fuel that comes first. The food that comes first. That It's given ahead of time. Walk in the bombardment of God's outrageous love. Like a, la- like a relentless, relentless laser beam coming on you. Walk in that. Have times where you sit and just let him do that. You know, don't, don't, don't let your all, yeah, I know, then end it uh, and move on to new and other interesting, fresh information. Sit in that. Let it just bombard, chip away, chip away to get into the inner recesses of, of the heart and then walk in that. And as you walk in that, moment by moment, just that awareness, the love of Christ begins to compel you, to constrain you, to surround you. And it becomes the motivating force for all that you do, for all that you do towards God, for all that you do towards yourself, for all that you do towards others. And that's the kingdom dance. We're just going to close this way. Um, I'll put up a scene. uh, just the cross here on on the uh, uh, screens. And if you want to sit for a little bit uh, and just um, let the Lord say to you, picture him in your mind. Nose to nose, looking in his eyes, hear him just say over and over again, I love you. I love you like a broken record. I love you. I love you.